Well, uh, in December 1946, the famous gangster uh, Bugsy Siegel moved out to Las Vegas and he opened uh, the, the uh, Flamingo Hotel uh, in Las Vegas. Now, he went to Vegas because he already had a thriving criminal empire. He was heavily invested uh, in horse racing and he wanted to di diversify his interests. And so uh, he thought, well, casinos, off-track betting, uh, that's for me. I can really get my hands involved in that uh, and make a fortune. New opportunity. So he gathered up a bunch of his mob friends. Uh, they pooled their resources. Uh, and uh, Bugsy muscled his way into this Flamingo project, which was already underway. He muscled out the old owner, and he uh, became the main proprietor, uh, and he got this thing established and had a grand opening. Now, unfortunately for Bugsy Siegel, uh, the Flamingo flopped. Uh, in the first week alone, it lost $300,000, uh, which is a lot uh, by any standard, but in 1946 money, that's really uh, a lot of money. Uh, but Bugsy was undeterred by this. He said, I, I must have done something wrong in the, in the construction of this thing. I'm going to renovate it. I'll make it nicer for gamblers. They will come and we will make money. And so he opened this thing later, uh, three months later, and this time he called it the fabulous Flamingo uh, Hotel. Well, uh, Siegel's investors became suspicious that wherever uh, Bugsy's money went in the Flamingo, uh, he seemed not to be able to make money. Uh, the, the, this casino continued to lose money, and so uh, convinced that Bugsy Siegel was, was cooking the books, uh, his mob uh, partners, at least according to mafia experts, uh, had him killed while he was reading the newspaper in a borrowed home uh, in Beverly Hills. Now, before the Flamingo, uh, Siegel was already well uh, established as a, as a crime boss uh, through bootlegging and gambling and ruthless assassinations before he moved out to Las Vegas. Uh, but as the saying goes, every dog has his day. And Bugsy Siegel was most certainly a dog. Well, as we come to the end of chapter 11 in the book of Daniel, uh, Antichrist has a similar story. Uh, the Antichrist is not Satan. The Antichrist is a human being who's empowered by Satan, uh, who does his will, as we will see. And he'll enjoy great success for a period of time, opposing God and opposing God's people. But in the end, uh, even the Antichrist will have his day when Jesus Christ destroys him. So we've been out of Daniel for several weeks now with our Advent series, so, uh, and we're jumping back into uh, what I would say is a very difficult passage. So uh, let's just kind of refresh our recollections about where we have been in this book and, and what chapter 11 represents here. So uh, remember all the way back uh, in chapter 2 when we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. Uh, Daniel predicted that four kingdoms would arise, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Well, these kingdoms have all come and gone in history, but remember that the statue also had ten toes of iron mixed with clay, uh, and that uh, those those toes represent some revived or uh, or, or a future version of the Roman Empire. And then, if you remember from back in chapter two, a stone, but not cut by human hands, comes and shatters those ten toes uh, and destroys them. Well, the verses that we're going to be talking about today are about the rise of the Antichrist from the kingdom of those ten toes mixed with clay and iron that Jesus will shatter. So it's the culmination here, what we're talking about today, of what was predicted in chapter 2. 
Now, also, remember back in Daniel's vision of the four beasts uh, from Daniel chapter 7. Remember, Babylon was represented by the lion with wings, and the bear with three claws was Medo-Persia. Uh, Greece was represented by a leopard with wings. And then there was Rome, which was the beast represented by ten horns. And then remember, continuing in chapter 7, that out of those ten horns, one horn would arise uh, from those ten uh, who would make great boasts and who would blaspheme against God. Well, that little horn of Daniel chapter 7 is the future Antichrist, and he's who we will be talking about today. Now, continuing further in the book of Daniel, remember Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. We said that each week represented seven years, and we counted 69 weeks of seven years from the date of Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple on March 5th, 444 BC, to the day that Jesus was cut off, meaning his rejection at his triumphal entry, on March 30th, uh, 33 AD, and we said that was exactly 483 years, or 69 weeks of seven years. And then we said the church age immediately followed that, the church age that we're currently living in, uh, intervened between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. And so that's where we are now. The next event on the church calendar is the rapture of the church, when Jesus will raise up believers to meet him in the clouds of heaven. Jesus comes for his church. And then the rapture is followed by Daniel's 70th week, which is called the tribulation. And during the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist will make a pact with Israel uh, for the first three and a half years. But in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation, uh, that's when Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel and make war against it. And that is also what we will be talking about today. Uh, and so finally, remember Daniel's vision of the future in, in chapter 10 and 11. Remember in chapter 10, uh, Daniel only received, he was preparing for the vision, right? He, he, uh, he was talking to the angel and, and uh, he got the information that Michael was fighting for three weeks and it was only then that, that uh, the angel, probably Gabriel, was dispatched to talk to Daniel. And in uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 35, we saw that many of those uh, predictions of Daniel have already been, uh, been, been fulfilled in history. So, for example, in verses 2 to 4, we saw how all of these kings uh, that Daniel predicted that would follow uh, Babylon were fulfilled exactly in Persia and Greece. And then in verses uh, 5 through 35, remember that big handout that I passed around uh, a couple times ago, the last time we were here, we talked about how Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and we saw that the Seleucids and the Ptolemies made war against each other back and forth, the north and the south. Uh, and then Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, remember him, he arose from the Seleucid Empire, uh, and he was the one who made war on Israel and desecrated the temple in 175 uh, to 170, uh, 168 B.C. Uh, that was the, the era of his most terrible reign against Israel. So that kind of catches us up. That, that's what Daniel has predicted, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, how Daniel's predictions in chapter 11 uh, kind of culminate and fulfill uh, what, uh, what, has been, uh, what has been prophesied, uh, prophesied before. So I hope you're with me on all that. That's a, a whole lot to digest. 
Uh, but what we need to know is that everything up to this point in chapter 11, up through verse 35, that has already happened in the past. Uh, so that's all behind us. And now as we come to the end of chapter 11, uh, this part of the chapter represents a jump into the distant future. And I'll explain why I say that in a few minutes. Uh, so verses, uh, verse 11:36 through 12:3 are about Satan's activity during the tribulation through the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now, to be sure, Daniel's version here is very brief. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 through 20 provides a lot more detail uh, than we have in this little snippet here uh, in Daniel. And even the Revelation chapters are confusing. So, uh, but they do help uh, shed some light on this passage uh, that we'll be looking at today and help us understand a little bit better. So, uh, to set the scene a little bit, we are in the last seven years. We're in Daniel's 70th week. And our passage corresponds with much of what God has revealed in the book of Revelation, but without quite as much detail as the book of Revelation has. So Revelation chapter 12 talks about Satan uh, and his angels being hurled to the earth in the middle of uh, the tribulation period. And here's what it says, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So Satan hurled to the earth in the middle of the tribulation period. And when he gets to earth, this is what happens according to a little later in the chapter, Revelation 12, uh, 13 to 14. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the dragon's reach. So when Satan is cast out of heaven uh, onto the earth, this is the middle of the tribulation period, the middle of Daniel's 70th week, and he will immediately begin to persecute uh, the woman who brought forth the male child. The male child represents Israel, and Satan's purpose is to destroy the Jews. Now, in the middle of this period, an antichrist is going to arise. Uh, he is going to cooperate with Satan, and he is the head of this reestablished Roman Empire that will exist at the time. This is the empire of uh, the ten toes of feet of uh, clay and iron. So this Antichrist is a man, uh, he's empowered by Satan, and he's called the beast in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. So these verses here rep or, or identify uh, this Antichrist, and they reveal that he will be energized and empowered by Satan himself. So here we are, middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is on the earth, he's empowered by Satan, uh, and now we're going to talk about what he will do, uh, which brings us to our passage. Uh, we're told in this passage uh, four things, uh, at least how we're going to break the passage up. We're going to talk about what the Antichrist will do, we're going to talk about the wars of the Antichrist, we're going to talk about the end of the Antichrist, and then we're going to talk about Israel's deliverance and resurrection. 
All right, so we're caught up now. We're going to dive into the passage. When we, as we read these, these, these verses, we'll consider the many things that the Antichrist will do when he breaks his covenant with Israel uh, halfway through their tri- tribulation. Now, before we begin, let me just say, this is some tough reading, and some of this is really upsetting, some of these things that are actually going to happen uh, on the earth uh, to people who live on the earth. But I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds, uh, as I said in the beginning, Jesus wins. Jesus wins, uh, and we know the ending is great, especially for those uh, who trust Jesus as Savior. Uh, Satan and Antichrist are not all-powerful. Uh, they are not omnipotent. They, are not, uh, they, they do not know everything. Uh, only God does, and only Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing, and our God is for us. Uh, so with that said, let's talk about what the Antichrist will do, verses 36 through 39. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt himself and boast against every god and will speak dreadful things against the god of gods. And he will be successful until the indignation is finished, because that which is determined will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will boast against them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God to whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, precious stones, and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will make them rulers over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So these are some of the activities of the Antichrist. Before we talk about them, Let me just explain why I think these verses have to be future uh, and and, uh, indicate a jump forward in time. And the first one is this, uh, Daniel chapter 11.36 follows Daniel 11.35. Brilliant, right? But in 11.35, there is a reference to uh, the end times. Here's what 11.35 says. Uh, And some of those who have insight will fall to refine, purge, and cleanse them until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases. So because verse 36 begins with the word then, and, uh, and verse 35 talks about the, the end times and the appointed times, it seems like then refers to the next thing in this sequence of events, which provides further details about uh, the end times that God has appointed. So that's the first reason. Now, the second reason is that the king in verse 36 cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes, which is what a lot of people argue. Uh, It can't be Antiochus Epiphanes because he did not fulfill uh, all of these things that are discussed here in 1136 through uh, chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, Not literally, anyway. Although uh, certainly his actions did foreshadow them. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a really, really bad guy. But when we talk about the Antichrist, we're talking next level bad. Uh, It's going to be uh, exceedingly, unimaginably horrific, the things that he does. The third reason is that Daniel's prophecies uh, in 1136 to 45 provide details about how the prophecies that we've already talked about uh, in chapters 2, 7, and 9 are going to be fulfilled in in this later kingdom uh, that will arise. Uh, So this is coming in the future, and Daniel uh, 11 is kind of like the culmination of everything Daniel has prophesied up to this point. And then finally, a future interpretation corresponds to Jesus' teaching in what's called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. I can't read uh, both full chapters, uh, but I will read this, uh, this part. 
Matthew 24, 21 to 25. For then there will be a great tribulation, <clears throat> such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world uh, until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or he is over here, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So none of this has happened yet in history. Uh, this all awaits future fulfillment as described in Daniel chapter 11 and in Revelation. So uh, putting it all together, put, putting together what Jesus said would happen at the end times, and that these, Daniel, these verses here in Daniel have not yet been, been fulfilled in history. Uh, these verses must describe Antichrist's future reign of terror. Now, back to what the Antichrist will actually do. Uh, he's going to do quite a few things. Uh, the first thing is that he's going to do as he pleases, which means uh, he will not be impeded by any human agency. He will not be subject to any higher human authority. Uh, he will have the power of a king, uh, and he will do Satan's will just as Jesus does the Father's will. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Remember when we were in Daniel chapter 7 and we, and we talked about the little horn, uh, we talked about what great boasts and, and, uh, and arrogant boasts that he would make. And here Daniel says that, that those boasts will include magnifying himself above every other god, which is exactly what we expect from the Antichrist. In fact, uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, uh, that says that the Antichrist will be the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So uh, this is a proud man. This is a man who will de de uh, demand worship of himself. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. So we can only imagine uh, the things that might come out of his mouth uh, against God, uh, against Jesus, and exalting himself. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So uh, God is sovereign over all of this. Uh, there is a time for the Antichrist, and that which is decreed will be done, but in the end, uh, the Lord Jesus will win. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes did do some of these things, uh, but he was not uh, killed by Jesus or his agency, and he did not fulfill uh, all the verses of this passage. So that's just verse 36. Antichrist is just getting started. Let's see what else he's going to do. Verse 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he re show regard for any other god. So regarding the ethnicity of the Antichrist, uh, since he comes out of the Roman world, uh, he's probably going to be a Gentile, but still he will have no regard for his uh, religious tradition. He will depend on the power that he receives from Satan. Now the phrase, the desire of women, is difficult. There are a whole bunch of different things that the commentaries say about this. It could mean that he will have no desire for women. Uh, it could mean that he will have no regard for the desire of women, which might mean their desire to birth children. It could even mean that, that he will have no regard for the desire of women, which would be the desire of women in the first century to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, so it could mean any one of those things, and we just can't be sure. And again, verse 37, uh, he will magnify himself above them all. So this is a man of, of great pride, great arrogance. 
moving on, verses 38 and 39, he's still got plenty more to do. He will honor a God of fortresses, uh, a God whom his fathers did not know with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. <clears throat> so he will, he will honor no God above himself. His God is the God of war, uh, the God of fortresses. Uh, and he will throw a lot of money at it to, to make sure that he's got uh, the best army, the best fortresses. Uh, he'll, he'll buy it with gold and with silver. And he's going to take action against the strongest fortress <clears throat> of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Now, this foreign god could mean a, a heathen god of war, uh, but it may also mean Satan. Uh, he will be the one uh, who helps him, uh, not a god, but will be his god. Uh, and so uh, this, this Antichrist will, will destroy the worship of other gods, particularly uh, the God of Israel, uh, Yahweh, and certainly his son Jesus. And another thing that he will do is he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over many and will parcel out land for a price. Uh, so this guy is astute politically. Uh, he's going to round up his allies. He's going to give them power depending on their loyalty based on the amount of cash uh, or, or loyalty that they contribute uh, to his kingdom. And the uh, Antichrist's goal is going to, be, going to be to establish this one world government doling out power and privilege as he sees fit and crushing uh, any rebellion against his government. And, and these things are, are well beyond anything that Antiochus Epiphanes ever did uh, and can only be fulfilled by the future Antichrist. So those are some of the things that he's going to do. Uh, now, having established his army, having established himself, uh, now he's going to wage wars. And we'll see in verses 40 to 43 that there are going to be wars against the king of the north and the king of the south. So let's, let's read these verses and we'll discuss. Uh, at the end time, the king of the south will wage war with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow through them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will reach out with his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heel." So these verses represent uh, the challenges that are going to uh, be made to the Antichrist power. Now, there's just not a ton of specific detail here, so uh, we have to come to this passage humbly and, and just say it's really hard to pin down exactly what uh, is being discussed here, uh, exactly what will happen. Uh, but armies uh, of, the, of the South, uh, led by the King of the South, perhaps some African federation uh, coming from the South, will arise against him. And then armies from the north, perhaps some kind of Russian federation, perhaps even the armies of Gog and Magog, mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, will move against the Antichrist. And these challenges will cause the Antichrist to, to move his armies into other countries, including Israel, which is called the beautiful land in this passage. And many countries will fall to him. Certainly Egypt uh, will fall to him. But then others, somehow, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, uh, they will escape his domination. 
but Antichrist will grow even more powerful as he, uh, as he accumulates all of the wealth of Egypt and adds those uh, to his treasury. Uh, so this will be the height of the Antichrist power. But then at the height of his power, that's when the Antichrist will come to an end. So we'll look at that in verses 44 and 45. But rumors from the east and from the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great wrath to eliminate and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. And yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So again, uh, this is a greatly truncated version of Antichrist's end, which we see described in greater detail uh, in Revelation chapters 16 to 19. What we know is that uh, the Antichrist will establish his headquarters in Jerusalem. Uh, the false prophet will cause many to receive the mark of the beast and, and cause them to worship the Antichrist. Those who refuse will be persecuted and they will be killed. Uh, and then the Antichrist is going to hear rumors of wars to the north and to the east. Uh, Revelation chapter 9 verse 16 describes an army of some 200 million people who are going to march against them. And so, enraged, he's going to move his armies out into the plains of Megiddo for the final battle. And somehow, uh, these armies, perhaps they forget that they're all fighting against each other, and they unite to, to uh, make war on J Jerusalem against God and his people, or perhaps God just smotes them all without them uniting. We can't really be sure. But Zechariah chapter 14 is quite instructive. It describes how God will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. And these nations are actually going to take the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to do as much as ravish the women of Jerusalem. All this will happen, uh, and, and Antichrist will be winning the war, and that's when the Lord intervenes. As we see here in these verses, Daniel 11.45 says that the Antichrist will pitch his tent between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. So between the seas is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, where Israel is. Uh, but then Zechariah 14.4, corresponding these together, says the Antichrist campaign will end when Jesus returns to the earth and arrives between the seas. So he's coming to the same place where Antichrist is. Uh, uh, Zechariah 14.4 talks about how uh, Jesus will descend and his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives and there'll be a great earthquake that creates a valley that runs east to west and Israel will be able to escape uh, through that valley that's created and Jesus will then uh, slay all his enemies. Uh, Antichrist will be killed. Uh, the false prophet will be killed. Uh, just like Bugsy Siegel, every dog has his day. The Antichrist uh, and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 19.20 uh, that I read earlier. And he will bind Satan for a thousand years, and Jesus will then set up his millennial kingdom on earth that will last a thousand years. All right, so we come to the end of uh, Daniel chapter 11, and what we have seen so far is, is uh, Daniel describing what the Antichrist will do. So from his pers per perspective, what he's going to be doing and all of his activities. Now, the chapter break at the end of verse 45 is really rather unfortunate because uh, the first three verses of Daniel uh, chapter 12 uh, go with uh, the events of Daniel chapter 11. Uh, they describe the effect of Antichrist's actions on Israel, which, of course, is what Daniel would himself would be most concerned about. So let's look at those three verses, and uh, we'll discuss those. Uh, this is Israel's deliverance and resurrection. Now, at that time, uh, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. 
and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine like the glow of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right. So verse 1 of chapter 12 doesn't come chronologically in time after the events of chapter 11. It's simultaneous with it, okay? Uh, it's the effect of what the Antichrist is doing in chapter 11 on Israel. So that's why the verse begins with now at that time, uh, you know, saying that, that these things are happening together. So the Antichrist is going to cause a period of such distress against Israel that has never been seen before. And when we consider everything that has happened to Israel in its history, dating all the way back, uh, we could go to Antiochus Epiphanes, we could go back even further uh, to slavery in Egypt and the Exodus, uh, we could talk about the Holocaust. Uh, when we think about everything that has happened to Israel in the past, and, and, and it says here that, that something is going to happen to them that's even worse than any of those things that have ever happened before, uh, that is really quite a statement. This is the time of Jacob's distress described in Israel, uh, in Ezekiel. Uh, this is Jesus' discussion of the tribulation from the Matthew statement that I read earlier. So Israel is going to be embroiled in this great tribulation. Now, before we talk about the tribulation and its effect on Israel, uh, I want to just take a second to remember the reason for the tribulation. Why? Why would God allow this to his chosen people? Well, remember when we were back in Daniel chapter 9, we looked at some of the reasons. Chapter 9, verse 24 says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So when we were in chapter 9, we spent some time uh, fleshing out each one of those six particular reasons. But I'm just going to spend a couple minutes on two of those reasons. And, and one reason is, is uh, for the tribulation is for God uh, to punish, to, to render judgment against Israel for its sin. Uh, that's the purpose of it. God is punishing Israel for its sin in failing to receive the Messiah. Uh, but another reason for the tribulation is for God to draw Israel to himself. Uh, it's God's final offer of grace to Israel and the unbelieving world at the time to receive Jesus as Savior uh, and so uh, to escape his judgment. You know, sometimes, and you probably know this in your own lives, sometimes God brushes you with a feather to get your attention, right? And sometimes that's all it takes. But sometimes we can be so ignorant and so hard-headed that God has to hit us on the head with a hammer, right, to get our attention. That is often the case. Well, the tribulation is God's hammer. He is trying to get Israel's attention and to get them to turn to him. And many people are going to die during the tribulation. Uh, Revelation says that, that up to two-thirds of the people are going to die. And if God's judgment on Israel seems harsh, well, it's because we underestimate sin, right? We, we put a low price tag on sin and we forget what our sin cost God. It cost God, uh, Jesus, going to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins to offer us this gift of salvation. And while God will judge Israel for its sin, remember that God promises not to forsake his people Israel. 
Romans 9 to 11 tells us all about Israel's national deliverance. God will defeat Israel's enemies uh, at the end of days, and many will turn to Jesus and be saved. And before Jesus returns, uh, God is going to use the angel, Michael, who we talked about in chapter 10. He made his first appearance in Daniel there. Uh, Michael is assigned to protect uh, and, and defend Israel so that it will avoid complete annihilation. And everyone whose name is written in the book of life will be saved. So God will keep his promises to Israel. Now, talking about uh, verses 2 and 3 now, we're moving into uh, the part about the deliverance and the resurrection. Uh, this is more spiritual deliverance than physical deliverance. The, the topic is the resurrection of the saints. And so these two verses here in Daniel are actually quite remarkable. Uh, these are the clearest references anywhere in the Old Te uh, Testament to, to personal, individual resurrection uh, that we'll find anywhere in the Old Testament, although certainly not the earliest. Uh, Abraham expressed confidence uh, in the resurrection of the dead by offering uh, his son Isaac to God, right? And Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. So there is expression of the resurrection in the Old Testament, but these verses in Daniel are, are pretty clear about a physical, individual, personal resurrection. So I want to make four quick points about the resurrection from uh, verses 2 and 3. Uh, and the first one is that though this passage refers to the Jews particularly, uh, these verses, among many others, show that, that God will resurrect everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, from the dead. Everyone is going to be resurrected. A second thing is, is that this resurrection will be bodily. It says that those who sleep in the dust will awake. Now, sleep, of course, is a metaphor for death, right? We know that. Uh, when we, or the soul does not sleep, right? Only the body sleeps. And when we die, our souls immediately either go into the presence of Jesus in heaven or uh, they go to hell. And there they will remain until the Lord raises up our physical bodies to be reunited with our souls. So one day, everyone will experience bodily resurrection, although not necessarily all at the same time. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament saints uh, will be raised at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, uh, as we learn from Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, but the resurrection of the wicked, uh, that won't happen till later, after the thousand-year period, at the great white throne judgment, uh, when God will raise unbelievers up uh, to face uh, that great white throne judgment. And we learn that from Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 14. So the resurrection will be bodily, whether believer or unbeliever, you will be resurrected and your body will be reunited with your soul. Your new body, point three, is immortal. Uh, it will never die. Whether its destination is heaven or whether its destination is hell, it remains forever. Now, I've known believers who refuse to believe in hell because they can't believe that God would do that to somebody. And you probably know of people like that yourself. Well, my answer to that is that God didn't do it to them. They did it to themselves by failing to receive the Lord Jesus Christ against all warnings uh, that they ought to. 
But people who refuse to believe in hell, they, they tend to believe that, that God would annihilate the soul after a certain period of time, just obliterate it so that it no longer exists, uh, rather than sending it to hell for all eternity. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, remember Luke chapter 16. Uh, Lazarus was in anguish in the flames uh, while he looked across the chasm that separates heaven from hell, and there he saw the, the poor man being comforted in Abraham's bosom. So the Bible teaches that we will all have eternal life. The only question is where, and that's why the choice to believe in Jesus is so monumental. Uh, so either we're going to have eternal life in heaven with God, or we're going to have eternal life in the fires of hell. So we need to choose wisely. And the last point that I'll make about the resurrection is that the, the resurrected saints are, from verse 3, those who have insight and will shine like the glow of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we will receive great honor and reward in heaven and we will worship the Lord daily uh, just as he promised. So to wrap up this passage, at the end time, there will be a terrible time of tribulation. It's a time of punishment unlike anything the world has ever seen. Uh, and yet, at the same time, it's also God's gracious gift uh, to the Jews as he offers them one last opportunity for salvation. And at the end of this tribulation period, Jesus will return. He will conquer his enemies. He will banish the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and he will bind Satan for a thousand years. So that's what's coming. Uh, and we know these things to be true because uh, God has been so faithful to fulfill his promises in the past and his prophecies that we can trust those that are coming in the future, which brings us to our applications. And the first one is simply that Daniel gives us tremendous confidence in the Bible. God has fulfilled all of his predictions exactly in the past, and so this gives us great confidence that God will fulfill the prophecies that still remain unfulfilled. And one of those promises is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. You know, we've just celebrated his first coming at Christmas just last week. Uh, God became a man. And so now we wait with great confidence that he will come uh, a second time as promised, defeat sin, defeat Satan, and that we will worship him face to face just as he promised. So Daniel gives us great confidence in the Bible. And secondly, uh, Daniel gives us great confidence in God's sovereignty. We should have peace when we experience trouble in the world, knowing that God is in control, he will win the battle over evil. So no matter what's going on politically, uh, no matter what's going on personally, uh, we can be confident that God has it under control. He will use it uh, somehow for good and for his glory. So if you're looking for a New Year's resolution this year, uh, almost everybody's New Year's resolution is I'm going to lose weight and I'm going to get in shape, right? Every January 1st, that's always mine. Uh, well, perhaps a better New Year's resolution, one that we'll actually possibly keep, uh, is to learn to trust God and to learn to worship him more. Maybe Daniel can help us do that. Well, we'll finish up uh, Daniel next week. And as we've been saying since the beginning of our study in Daniel, Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win. So praise God for the fulfillment of these detailed prophecies so we can know without a doubt that God is on the throne and that Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for these prophecies. These are difficult to understand. Lord, we, we, we struggle to muddle through these, Lord. We, we, we don't know exactly what it means. We can really only look at it from 30,000 feet, Lord, and say... Um, 
we know that there is evil in the world. We know that there is a greater evil coming. But Lord, we thank you that you have delivered us and will deliver us, Lord. And we thank you that in the end, you win. And because you win, we win. Lord, we thank you for all these things. They are all possible because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And Lord, we are just so grateful for that. Uh, we love you and we thank you for these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.